be somewhat rain-related. What else could it be? The Eurythmics. Uh, and I, gosh, I hope I chose the right song. I, I suppose I could have chosen Here Comes the Sun, but the sun is not coming. Uh, and it isn't coming for a while, so that was parked. Yeah. Nonetheless, not that a bad. That was it. It's, it was brave to play that. It's a bit too soon. I wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here, here it is. Here it is. But it's a good song, isn't it? That's lovely, it's yeah. It's a good song. It's 25 to 5, uh, the panel. Okay, so a lot of response coming in, a lot of response regarding uh, leadership in crisis, particularly your view on how um, Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown, um, well, how you thought he did. Uh, Wayne Brown totally fails his header and is still trying to score points. The Ministry of Education had already made the call and likewise the Army is involved. Uh, thank goodness we have a proactive minister and prime minister, strategic and clear. Someone else says, look, I'm not a fan of Wayne Brown. However, the poor bloke is new in his job and he's not trained to make a call in this field. Give him a break. He's only human. So uh, how did you feel the response went? Uh, text me 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. We have Palmjeet Pumar, uh, former MP, and we have um, comedian MC Alan McRoy this afternoon. And there was also chaos at Auckland Airport, scenes of the terminals underwater, people wading through the terminal. Our next guest described being at Auckland Airport uh, as treacherous. Danae Moodley has spent much longer at an airport terminal than she wanted to. I spoke to her just before the show. She shared her experience. We got there uh, in time for our flight, which was just before nine. Um, and from the hour or so before that I was waiting at the gate, the gate was never updated or anything. Uh, and then it was five minutes before my flight took off that we had an overhead announcement that basically just said, we know the weather's bad, bear with us. <laughs> and then we didn't hear anything again for about three hours. Um, and I wandered around to see if there were any staff members until midnight, and I never, I didn't see a single staff member. I didn't see a janitor. I didn't see an airline staff. I saw no one. It was quite, um, quite intense. All of the vendors closed except for McDonald's, so McDonald's was just overrun with people. Asleep. Uh, I was woken up at 7 o'clock to say that I had to leave the terminal. So it was quite a traumatic evening. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still recovering mentally from it. I can only imagine. So you get there at 9 on Friday. Um, you're waiting there for hours. So you, what, you spent the whole night uh, at the terminal. Yeah, I got there at 6. Uh, my flight was at 9. So I was there for quite a long time. I think I was at the airport for a total of um, 17 hours or so before my sister was able to come pick me up again. There were also the issues of uh, practicalities. I understood you wandered around for hours simply trying to find a blanket. You were freezing. Yeah, yeah. I've, I was able to fall asleep for about an hour, but then I was so cold. I was heading to Brisbane, so all I had was shorts and sandals on. <laughs> and I was freezing cold and um, I just wandered around from 2.30 until 6 in the morning looking for someone to give me a blanket. <laughs> was, was, was there nobody on hand? Was there no staff around? I mean, who was around? There were no staff members around at all. Um, I saw uh, around midnight I was doing a lap of the airport just looking for a staff member, and I saw a group of security guards, and I got close enough to hear them say that they needed to avoid the passengers and go out the back. What? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, um, there weren't even security guards around. There was thousands of people in this airport and there was no, didn't feel secure or that we were being taken care of at all. What about food? You mentioned McDonald's Uh, was open, but what else? Yeah, McDonald's was open, but there was like 100 people always there. So I just avoided food. When my flight was canceled, or when I when I didn't board my flight at nine o'clock, I foresaw or I foresaw sorry, <laughs> I foresaw that I would be stuck there. So I went and grabbed a bunch of water bottles from um, the relay. I think it's called relay, and uh, a couple of bags of chips or something. But they made an announcement around three in the morning that there was uh, some small bites and water bottles that were dropped off. Um, and I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, but it was just like, I don't know, maybe two dozen boxes of things for, for 2,000 people. <laughs> so it just ran out instantly. I didn't get anything from that drop-off. Okay, so there were lots of people just milling around, wandering around. Yeah. What, what would be your advice to uh, Auckland Airport if anything uh, like this should happen again? Because needless to say, it is going to happen again. Well, it really felt like there was no leadership. I think as soon as people heard their, the car, like the fact that the car park was flooded, people just abandoned. They all left us. There was no one there. And the overhead announcements just had nothing. They just kind of said we were like in lockdown, that we couldn't leave because the, uh, under the ground floor was all um, um, flooded. So I just think they needed someone to take a bit of charge and uh, even just give us that there was no updates, you know, just something. <laughs> okay. There's there no information at all. All right. Okay. Finally today, um, uh, to the present, uh, how is it going now? I am now finally uh, no longer on hold. I was on hold for eight hours yesterday trying to find my luggage. <laughs> uh, and today I was I was able to get my luggage and my flight is rebooked. So now I get to enjoy two days extra of uh, rainy Auckland weather. <laughs> that was Danae Moodley there, uh, who has been spending a lot of time at Auckland Airport. Uh, and um, she said to me, actually, uh, when we got off air, this is going to have a long lasting impact on her in terms of the anxiety. It was a really stressful uh, and uh, troubling experience and she said she's going to remember it for a long time. She, she's not alone too. So what is the psychological impact of these types of events and how can we reduce it to discuss? We have registered clinical psychologist and CEO of Umbrella Wellbeing, Dr. Dougal Sutherland. Dr. Sutherland, kia ora. Uh, Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you on. And every person will have their own story. That was Danae's there, you know, wandering around at Auckland Airport um, by herself, freezing cold and no security. Uh, Others we've talked to lost their home, worried about young ones. I mean, disasters like this really have an impact on people's mental health, huh? Yeah, they do. I think, you know, that the, the interview that you just had was a was just an example of uh, the level of uncertainty, of uncontrollability, of unpredictability, of anxiety and distress that that people in these situations really um, r- really experience. And I think, you know, the, 
I think the caller that you were just speaking to, you know, in, in many ways it was an easy solution um, for Auckland um, Airport. It was just they just needed somebody to provide them with reassurance. Yeah, right. They didn't necessarily have to do anything magic. It was just somebody, you know, that her tale was about, you know, I didn't have anybody to talk to. There's nobody there to provide me with reassurance. And for some people, it's just that there is somebody that's in authority that says, it's okay, we've got you, um, and just stay stay tight there. Sometimes that's all that people need. Okay, we've that's got right. you. It's a fair point, Panjit. That's a fair point. And I think what we are hearing from these experiences is that um, how unprepared people were because uh, there was um, lack of sufficient warning. People were not prepared mentally and to deal with these situations. And also the other thing is I think it will come down to, in my view, uh, how quickly the wraparound services become available. Because if that process is very long and if uh, people have to go through a lot of hassle, then obviously the psychological damage will be more. But if it is quick and a timely manner, I think most people will accept that this was something beyond their control. Would you agree with uh, with this? Yeah, look, I, I, I think I would. I think I think it's about, you know, we can't necessarily control or plan for these sorts of urgent uh, extreme emergency situations. But what we can do is get the workforce trained up so that people know what to do when they when these things occur. And, and, you know, everybody's prediction is that we're going to see more of these types of weather events with climate change. So I'd be encouraging any sort of big organisation, you know, the council, uh, Auckland Air, um, airport, all those sorts of organisations to be making sure that their employees are trained up. You don't have to be a psychologist to provide this sort of support. It's just sort of being basically a good human being and providing some okay. some reassurance and support to those people who are your customers and clients. Just reassurance, eh? All right, Alan. Yeah, that's like it just seemed like a massive lack of like leadership there in the airport and even a common voice instead of, like, it seemed like a parcel drop-off in a war-torn country. Like, there, help yourselves as the security ran out the back door. That's not going to calm down anybody, really. So uh, I don't. I, I can imagine the anxiety uh, you'd have over that for well, future travel. Well, well on that, um, Dougal, uh, we are expected to be soaked with some significant rainfall over the next couple of days. I mean, my, I guess my uh, experience was not being able to get off social media, um, you know, when the rain was really falling because I just wanted to know as much as I could, you know, and that leads, mm. leads to a lot of tiredness and that leads to a lot of a little bit of anxiety, doesn't it? I mean, are there tips or is there, is there a, a key tip on how people can deal with, as you say, this uncertainty? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I know what you mean about getting sort of sucked into social media, Wallace. I mm. spent a fair amount of time on Saturday just keeping up to date with what was going on, and yeah. it is tiring, and it does just wind us up. Um, look, go back to what we learnt during COVID. We learnt that actually it's useful to to um, to sometimes just limit the amount of exposure that you have to the media and to screens and to social media, um, perhaps tuning in to a couple of main bulletins a day if you're finding that it's tiring you out. But um, try and resist that urge to be on all the time and because that's a really exhausting place to be. So, so treat yourself kindly and treat yourself with care. Notice when you're getting a bit overwhelmed and tired and pay attention to that and think, ah, maybe I'll just log off for a little bit. Uh, but it, So it's noticing when you're feeling really overwhelmed yourself and, and not good. continuing to go on. Lovely. Thank you, Dr Sutherland. Kia ora.
that's uh, clinical psychologist Dr. Dougal Sutherland. Uh, some other news here. Auckland Emergency Management says 69 red placards have been issued to residential and commercial buildings to date. A red placard means access to the building is prohibited as it is deemed too dangerous to inhabit. 300 yellow placards have also been issued where buildings have significant damage but may be used in reduced capacity. I'm Wallace Chapman. A nice to be with you. Uh, just uh, as a side note, tomorrow I am minding little Junior, uh, tomorrow and <laughs> Wednesday. So uh, Susie Ferguson is taking my place uh, tomorrow on the panel and Wednesday. It's 14 to 5, Panji Pamam and Alan McElroy with me today. If you can't live in your house due to the flooding, you cannot be charged rent for it. That is according to the Residential Tenancies Act 1986. Thousands of homes are being assessed, red stickers and yellow stickers, more on that soon. But with us to tell us about renters' rights in this, Dr Lucy Telfer-Bernard from the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago in Wellington. Uh, Kia ora, Dr Telfer-Bernard. So this is really good information uh, to know. So tell us more about the rights of renters in these damaged homes. Yeah, so there are really two situations that tenants may be finding themselves in. The first is if the premises are completely uninhabitable, and in that situation then the tenants don't have to pay any rent going forward, and they can, if they want to, give two, day, two days' notice to the landlord that they're going to move out, rather than the usual 28 days that's required. The other circumstances where the premises are maybe partially damaged, and so maybe you can use parts of it, but not the whole property, and that then gets a bit more complex, because you can expect a rent reduction, Okay. but that's something that you need to negotiate with the landlord. Right, so putting this into terms that people will just be getting their head around from Auckland Council, red stickers deem a property unsafe to enter, yellow stickers restrict entry by only allowing people to enter a certain part of the building, or by allowing them to go in temporarily to remove things. So both these situations, rent won't be the same? No, that's right. And in, in both of those situations, where even when they're just going in to get their, their things and take them out again, I would call that, it sounds like that property isn't able to be lived in, and so those tenants wouldn't have to pay rent. But even beyond that, um, you know, there might be a, a property that was safe to enter and start cleaning up for, for someone who was properly dressed and so on, and, and there will be a lot of residential properties like that, but it's not really healthy or safe to live in and that's a kind of a a little more complex because then that's where you may get some disagreement between the landlord and the tenant about whether that property is habitable or not. Right. Yeah, one thing you did mention, uh, uh, Lucy, was that issue around uh, water and, you know, so this, 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 this fetid water that uh, lingers is very, very, very unhealthy and will contaminate that house. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I think most of us have had a leak in our home at some stage and we're used to, to dealing with that by drying out the carpet or, or whatever we need to do. And then it's fine and you can carry on as you were generally. But with flood water, that's generally going to contain sewage and maybe some dead animals. It's not, it's not water that, um, that you want to be treating just as water. It needs to be tr- treated as though it was 
um, sewage, basically. And so if you think about what you would do with that, you, you would be wearing gloves and it does need to be really thoroughly cleaned and anything absorbent, absorbent needs to go. So it's quite a different sort of um, uh, remediation yeah. required from, from just a standard residential leak. Very good. Thank you for um, being with us on that. Uh, the renters' rights in a time of flood. That is Dr. Lucy Telfer Barnard from the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago, Wellington. Much response about this next uh, story. You'll be hearing a lot about that. Um, uh, uh, Kia ora, Friday, 5.30 Friday night. I tried to get on the northwestern motorway from Point Chev. I had to turn back due to the pooling of water. An hour later, I ride back on my bike and witness the road being closed off. These bits of information were surely getting fed to our mayor. Uh, where was the information uh, are a lot of people saying. So, leadership in crises. Questions have been asked about the sort of leadership that was displayed on Friday, especially after the stand-up with Mayor Wayne Brown. You have to uh, take your role seriously, and my role isn't to rush out with buckets. It's to be here, uh, ensuring that the centre is well organised and that we are taking the appropriate steps at the appropriate time, not rushing into them. There's been a huge response around this, hasn't there? Nearly 11,000 people have signed a petition to remove Wayne Brown as Mayor of Auckland and now there's going to be an inquiry. Um, Mr Brown has announced this afternoon at 3pm looking at all aspects of the response over council and uh, agencies. So what does leadership look like in times of crises? There was this Twitter post, for example. Advice to Wayne Brown. Stand down. You don't have what it takes to lead our city. We know it. Your staff know it. And you know it as well. Stand down and hand over the reins to your deputy and you may be able to salvage a little of what's left of your tattered reputation. Well, a person who wrote that was Deborah Peed, has had a long career in public relations and communications with Peed PR. Deborah, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Well, very strong sentiment there. Um, two days in, do you still stand by it? Well, look, first, when I wrote that tweet, Wayne Brown might have been shaking his fist at the clouds. I was shaking mine at the TV after his most incompetent performance. So that's what was written off the back of that. But two days in, um, to me, I've been in this industry for 40 years, and I've learnt in that time that um, comms and crisis management is more about protection than it is about promotion. And every organization should have a crisis management plan. You know, that's your blueprint, it's your roadmap, it's a, call it your insurance policy. And that's what you lean on in times of trouble. And you don't leave it on a shelf to gather dust. Um, you role play, you keep it up to date. And I don't get the sense that if Auckland City Council had a crisis comms plan, that Wayne Brown was across it. Because if he was across it, why did it take 24 hours of him looking frozen in the headlamp? That's just not good enough when your city is drowning. Tom, so that's the first, that's the first okay. thing I would say. Yeah, um, I can understand. You know, there is a lot of frustration around uh, people, those who are suffering. 
Um, uh, the thing is, like, at this stage, what I, uh, I'm personally concerned about is that people have shelter and people have food. And after that, obviously, as the mayor has announced the review, we would definitely would like to see where things went wrong. And finger pointing definitely will start. But at this stage, I just want to care for people. That's number one. And obviously, there are questions about local authorities and central government's response. So local government, that review, we will be really interested to see how, what comes out of that. Central government, I have to say, along with the community response, which I really want to applaud. For central government, those Ministry of Social Development lines were great. But to just give $100,000 to mural fund, I know that it requires a cabinet approval for it to be more than 100000 But why that cabinet approval could not be done online when by night, a nine or 10 o'clock news, we knew the the magnitude of damage the rain had already caused. So why are we waiting until tomorrow for that response from central government? So there are questions about not just local government, but right. a, a bit of disappointment with central as well. Okay, so my, you're saying view. what is David Deborah, Let's bring Alan. You can respond to both. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm the same. Like he just, you know, he comes across as a as a boss, as a as a business manager. He, even in his press conference, he was still pointing at people on his team. That's their job. That's their job. You know, it just didn't seem. It was just. I I, I can see why he's angered everyone. People are fuming. Uh, did he have the information early? Is that do we know that for did he have the information that the storm was coming in? Could a different leader have done something? Well, speaking of different leaders, then if you want to know what a leader, a real leader, looks like in times of crisis, Deborah appeared, who might one turn to? Well, I mean, you only have example. to think back to the, the the Christchurch earthquake and Bob Parker, who stood in that high vis yellow jacket day after day standing up for every single media opportunity and you know he he was someone that recognized that in the times of crisis your media are your allies media come to your stand-ups not to berate you and catch you out but to get the questions that their listeners and their viewers and their readers are asking and they relay that information back and wayne brown as a leader totally misjudged that and he ended up shouting and fighting and being belligerent with media and um, you know as a as an essential part of leadership in a crisis is the ability to communicate and the ability to coordinate and I'm afraid he dropped the ball on both of them. I think that one thing resonated uh, actually Deborah Palmerjeet as well is that um, it was just the, the mere act of fronting and providing a calm voice and reassurance to galvanise all people, all Aucklanders. Okay, this is what's happening, and I'm going to be here and present for you. That's worth a lot in and of itself, Deborah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, um, in a time of crisis, people are uh, coming to you with, they're looking for guidance, they're looking for instructions, they're looking to know what to do next. And so you need that central voice that um, has the finger on the pulse, knows where all the jigsaw pieces fit, and can report back and coordinate. And I get that not everyone's a great communicator, and some people really battle to communicate under stress. So that battle should be passed to someone else. And I'm pleased to see that it looks like it's been passed to um, his deputy, who is doing a far better job at communicating with media than he has done. And, you know, so that's an essential role. 
um, in times of a crisis, you need great organisation and you need expert communication. That's right. And um, what I would look in a leader is empathy, number one. Okay. Mm. Number two is action. And then I want to hear something about future-proofing after that action. Empathy, action means support. Empathy, action, future-proofing. Future proofing. I can understand that. Deborah Pete, kia ora. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. You're welcome. And uh, that is uh, the panel. Uh, I'm Wallace Tappen and uh, Susie Ferguson is in for uh, tomorrow and the day after while I mind a little uh, Wallace Jr. and Pamji Pumar and Alan McRoy. Thank you so very much for being with me on this uh, day. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you All so right, much. Stay Thank with you. us on RNZ National. End of the evening. Checkpoint is next. You are on RNZ National. <laughs>